The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today from the pulpit to the pew. Okay, here we are. Welcome, welcome. All y'all, thanks for being here. Also, welcome to folks listening to the Setting the Record Straight podcast. We're here for the second session in our little series on reconstructing the Christian sermon. I think the podcast is going to be titled uh, Constructing a Reconstructed Sermon. And in this sermon series, I'm asking the question, how should our Christian Reconstructionism, how should that affect our preaching? Specifically, should you be able to tell Reconstructed preaching from just run-of-the-mill evangelical Bible-believing preaching? And last time we were together, I suggested that there are two major ways that we should be able to tell, besides just the fact that Reconstructionists are going to preach on uh, doctrines that are considered odd, uh, post-millennialism and theonomy in particular. But aside from that, I think there are a couple of ways that our preaching is going to be a bit different. We're going to talk mainly about one of them tonight. One of them is uh, application. Then the area of application, I'm suggesting that a Christian Reconstruction sermon should be much more widely focused when it comes to applying the text of the scripture to our lives. In most expository preaching that you're going to hear, and I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you haven't already run into in your lives as believers. In most of the preaching that you're going to hear, expository preaching, even the good stuff that you listen to, the applications are going to be pretty severely limited to just what you believe and how you're going to think and how you're going to go about maybe, maybe it'll get into how you're going to go about doing your business. 
but it's generally going to be about what's going on in your own little heart before God and possibly what would it look like if we tried to apply this text to say the way we deal with our spouse or our children and the application is really very rarely going to get much wider than that and I think Christian reconstruction should cause us to preach in a much wider way because we are seeking to disciple the nations we're seeking to apply all the word to all of life we believe Jesus has reached out his hands to everything in the whole creation and claimed it as his own. And our preaching should reflect that when we get, get around to applying the scripture. The other way I suggested last time that our preaching should be different, I may not have used this term, but I'm going to use it tonight. I think Christian reconstruction should cause us to preach more aggressively than the normal evangelical sermon more aggressively and I'm speaking in terms of spiritual warfare and the understanding we have that God has called us to cast down strongholds to take every thought captive to pull down the altars of Baal wherever they are and unlike Gideon who got away with pulling down the altar in the nighttime when nobody was watching I believe God has called you men who are seeking to be preachers and pastors, God has called you men to pull down those altars in broad daylight. On a Sunday morning in front of God and everybody, pull down those altars. And you do it by applying the word of God, like I said, to everything. Now, I think that there are a couple of questions that we can ask of our text. Pretty much any preaching class that you go to is going to have you ask questions and certain things you're going to need to figure out in your study. And I'm going to suggest a few additional questions compared to what you're ever going to hear in any of those classes. I've got a couple of extra questions for you to ask. And I think that as we, as we ask those together, you're going to see that they kind of instantly change the way you think about the text. And they instantly well, maybe I'm betting, maybe I'm wrong. But I really think that as just asking the questions like we're going to do here tonight, I think they will kind of automatically have you thinking more aggressively about the text. And uh, if the word of God is a sword, like it's compared to a sword at least three times in the New Testament, then the questions I'm going to have us ask of the text are meant to kind of sharpen the edge and, and to point out, at least in our own mind, where we're supposed to be sticking that sword and what's the target. A lot of preaching classes will tell you that, the, that an expository preacher must exegete two things. He must exegete the text of the scripture and he must exegete his own congregation. Meaning he doesn't, it's not enough to know just what's going on in the text, but a good pastor needs to know what's going on in his congregation and, and what his hearers really need. And I don't have any argument with that. I think that probably is right. I would just add two more things. I don't think the pastor's job is done when he has 
exegeted the text and the congregation. There are two more things I suggest that he needs to exegete, and those are culture and what I'm calling churchianity. Uh, it's popular on Facebook in our circles to refer to that as the Ministry Industrial Complex or MIC. I'm going to call it churchianity. And hopefully I won't have to explain that. <laughs> Everything you and I hate about what goes on in evangelical Christian churches. And uh, we just can't see how professed Bible believers act this way and do these things. That's what I'm calling churchianity. Areas that really need to be reformed. So let's dive in a little bit. I mentioned last time we were together, just for the sake of giving us a model and, and helping us work through sermon preparation, we're actually going to do some sermon preparation here. And I suggested let's go through the 133rd Psalm. I just want to read that for us here today. It's just three verses. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down on the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. All right, three verses, actually pretty simple. I'm not going to tell you, I don't intend to tell you how to study a text. I trust you to get that figured out yourself. And I'm not going to recommend a bunch of tools and resources for you. You're here tonight or you're listening today because you have some sense that God has called you to the study and preaching of the word. And I'm not here to uh, tell you details about how to get that done. For my own self, I'll just tell you, I, I think that it's ridiculous for me to believe that I'm going to approach a text and come out with a bunch of new stuff that godly men and women before me have missed. And so I'm really not even, I'm not looking for that. There have been times I think I came up with stuff that was good that I didn't find in any commentaries or anything like that. And, and I still thought it was solid even though I didn't see it in those places. But that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to be innovative or... Uh, imaginative with my interpretation of the scripture. I want to be those things when it comes to application, but not so much with interpretation. And for me, often there's a question about how much do you lean on commentaries and, and stuff like that, and when should you consult commentaries? And for me, I kind of I do that early in the sermon preparation process. And a lot of the time, it's just to kind of check myself. I've done my reading. I've I've looked up words that I didn't that I wasn't sure I knew. I've checked all sorts of different comparative interpretations, and and so I go to the commentaries believing that I have an idea of what the text says, and and I believe I'm probably right. But I like to go to the commentaries early just to check me, check myself on that. And I have been checked a lot in the past, and, and that's fine. I'd rather that happen than get up and preach something and then later find out maybe that wasn't the best 
way of interpreting that text, which has also happened. And uh, I'm determined that won't happen again. So I consult the commentaries early, and that's neither here nor there. You do it the way you feel like God is leading you to do it. So just for example, I would suggest that your study of Psalm 133 will generally have you dividing or coming up with maybe an outline for Psalm 133 that maybe has three points or one main point in verse 1 and then two explanations. In verse 1, David is extolling the virtue of unity, brothers dwelling together in unity. In the next two verses, he's, he gives a couple of metaphorical examples or similes. It's like the precious oil. It is as the dew of Hermon. Both of those Texts are quite rich in terms of their symbolism. As soon as you start talking about the anointing oil on Aaron, and there's all sorts of richness involved there, looking forward to the Messiah, the anointed one, the anointing oil as symbolic of God's choice and his sovereignty, symbolic of the Spirit of God coming to enable ministry. And so all those things are very rich there. And uh, the Dew of Hermon, I don't know if you've heard this. This is just a, a neat thing. I got this from Spurgeon's three-volume commentary on the Psalms, the Treasury of David. And on Psalm 133, there's a note saying from an from a explorer from England several centuries ago who went down to the Middle East and camped in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And in the morning, they woke up with all of their equipment soaked with dew, even the stuff inside the tent. The stuff inside the tent was as soaked as if it had been outside in a rainstorm. But there was no rain. It was just the dew. And what they figured out was that there was a... On one side of Mount Hermon, there's a marshland or a swampy land. And in the heat of the day... Uh, the evaporated moisture rises with the hot air and eventually coalesces and forms a cloud around the peak of Mount Hermon. So on a hot day, at the end of the day, Mount Hermon will be wreathed in clouds. And then during the night, the air cools off and the clouds begin to descend, uh, including descending on the other side of Mount Hermon into the foothills or what the what the word here refers to as the mountains of Zion uh, hills really probably if we looked at them we'd probably call them hills and so this dew the cloud descends during the night and when it when it hits these foothills it eventually condenses and so the moisture in the cloud becomes this well, it's just water, it's just wet, and so it's an amazing amount of dew. And you can imagine in that sort of situation that even in a hot, arid summer, then that's going to be really, really fertile ground, and it's going to be easy to grow things there. And it's a, then I think you pair that with the anointing oil, and I think it's another indication of the fact that unity among the brothers... Uh, is the starting place for a lot of fruitfulness. 
So there's a lot of rich symbolism there. It's easy to think about how you might go about preaching those things. Now, when we start talking about putting an edge on what we're going to preach here, it's important for us to find what I'm going to call the curse consequence. You'll find what I'm talking about often referred to as the fallen creature condition or something similar in the text. And what what I'm talking about here when I say we, we need to find the curse consequence is that you need to find in your text what is the problem, specifically the problem that is uh, here because of Genesis chapter 3 and the rebellion of Adam and Eve and, and they're being cast out of the garden. Throughout the Bible, we see the curse consequence with many different manifestations, death, demonization, disease, strife, poverty, slavery, oppression, exile, separation from God, false religion, so on and so on. And so my suggestion to you is that in whatever text you're in, you need to find the curse consequence. What is the problem? If you're into writing fiction, uh, creative writing, you understand that the plot's not going to be interesting if there isn't a bad guy, if there isn't an adversary for you to fight against. And so just in the area of making our sermons listenable and interesting, I think it's important for us to spot the bad guy. In Psalm 133, the bad guy is only implied. It's not there explicitly. When I went over this with some men in my church, I asked them, what's the implied curse consequence in Psalm 133? And it's pretty easy. They came up with the ideas of strife, division, disunity, lack of harmony, lack of peace. So the psalm is extolling unity among the brethren. And so by implication, the curse consequence that it's dealing with is disunity, disharmony. Okay, now, when it comes to placing the edge on the sword and figuring out where to point it, here, here are some of the questions that I feel like we need to ask of any text. The first one is this. Concerning the cursed consequence that's present in the text, what does the wider culture around us think of this cursed consequence? What does the wider culture around us think about this cursed consequence? got to be honest with you, some curse consequences that are in the scripture, the culture doesn't even think it's a curse. You know, they kind of enjoy it. But there are some curse consequences like disease and poverty and death itself that the culture, the culture does see it as problems. And, and so it's important for us to know how does the culture think of this curse consequence. Now, once we get that, then a really important question is, how does the culture around us seek to remedy or combat the curse consequence? And I think as soon as we answer that question, now you're pointing at an idol. Now you're pointing at an idol. You're pointing at a counterfeit redeemer. You're pointing at something that the culture is looking to to fix things that isn't Jesus Christ. 
should be looking to Jesus, but it's looking to this other thing instead. And so if my men were right, and I think they are, that the implied curse consequence in Psalm 133 is strife, division, disunity. What does the culture think of that curse consequence? I think, I'll just tell you, I think the curse consequence, when the culture looks at it, it sees it as kind of irritating and hard to control. You know, tyrants of every stripe don't want a lot of disharmony going on. They don't want people arguing. That's hard to, that's hard to keep an iron hand on that and, and keep it just uh, calm and quiet. Hard to govern when people are fighting. And the culture at large, I think the culture understands that when people are fighting, you don't get much done. And the culture does have an agenda, and it does have things it wants to get done. And so it naturally sees disunity as a bit of an obstacle or a threat to their own goals and agenda. So if the culture thinks of the curse consequence in this way, then what's the answer to how does it seek to remedy it? Again, here's where you're going to find an idol. Here's where you're going to find a lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just some things to suggest as we work through this passage. When the culture deals with disunity, or strife among peoples, how does it seek to remedy it? Generally, by force. You're going to stop fighting because we're going to make you stop fighting. And, and so there, there are many instances in which the culture fights disharmony with a forced sort of unity. I think specifically in, in the history of the Roman Empire, where, as you know, uh, conquered people groups would often be allowed to continue to worship whatever whatever gods they worshipped before Rome conquered them. And this meant that there were a plethora of religious beliefs and a wide variety of gods and ideas in the Roman Empire. And at some point, Rome began to realize that was a, a real recipe for disharmony and strife within the empire. And the way they thought to fix it was to say, you can go ahead and continue to worship your gods as long as on top of that worship, you're willing to come here and offer a pinch, a pinch of incense to the genius of the empire. So do whatever you want to do, but everybody, regardless of what else they believe, we're going to be unified in worshiping the empire itself especially as personified in the emperor or Caesar. So that's a forced sort of unity. In our day, uh, oh, by the way, I think we may get there in the United States. <laughs> I think we may get there. Well, frankly, we kind of already are in some places. Like, uh, man, get a football player to kneel down during the national anthem and, and people come down on him. Like... Uh, you're violating blasphemy laws. How dare you express this contrary opinion? <laughs> and so the, the uh, social pressure itself is seeking to enforce a kind of unity. 
even if the unity is only existing because you just shut up and do what we tell you. Another way that we deal with or the culture deals with disunity is by demanding tolerance. And this is just a way of saying you're not allowed to you're not allowed to start a fight over the actions of this person or what this one's doing. You're not allowed to say anything that's going to cause a controversy, lack of harmony. Now, Psalm 133, you're eventually going to get to the point of asking the question, where does this sort of unity come from? And I'm convinced that although David was writing about it and extolling its virtues, what, uh, 900,000 B.C., somewhere around there, that although he was singing the praises of unity among the brethren and talking about what a valued virtue this is, uh, I don't think he ever really experienced it. And frankly, I don't think anybody really did experience what he is writing about until we get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, where the disciples were living with an amazing amount of unity and harmony among them all. They were of one mind and one heart. They held all things in common and that sort of thing. So I'm suggesting to you that God's solution to the cursed consequence of disunity is the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the culture counterfeits that, like we just said, through power, through force, through coercion, all those things. And now, don't you see that idol rearing its head? Don't you see? And some of you, I see it in your eyes. You're already, <laughs> you're already thinking, man, that'll preach. I can preach about that. Yeah, you can, and you should. Okay, so... There's a couple of questions there that I think will put an edge on your sermon. Ask, what does the culture think of this cursed consequence and how does it seek to remedy it as a counterfeit gospel? Second question that I want you to consider is, how does churchianity deal with this cursed consequence? You've got evangelical Bible-believing churches who understand that unity is important. They can read the New Testament and find Places where we're told to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're told not to quench the spirit. There's all the one another passages that are meant to uh, make this sort of unity flourish. And so churchianity understands that unity is a big deal. But for them to find God's solution would mean a certain amount of repentance and reform on their part. And I'm convinced that churchianity around us generally is willing to settle for a fake unity, a false unity. Generally speaking, this is an organizational unity. One of the common, one of the common criticisms that Roman Catholic apologists throw out against everything that's not Roman Catholic is, see... You guys have no unity. If the Bible is so clear on basic doctrines and if the truth is so easily understood, how come you've got 30,000 denominations? And you've heard that sort of thing before. 
And they'll say that in turn, by way of saying, but look, us here with the magisterium of the church, we've got this great unity. We're all united under the Pope. But the more you investigate under that, the more you find out that the theological divergence, the theological and doctrinal landscape is a mile wide and an inch, inch deep in the Roman Catholic communion where they have the exact sort of theological disunity that exists in the Protestant world. The only unity they have is that they've all agreed that they're under the Pope and they'll live under this organizational system. So that isn't being of one mind and one heart. That's an organizationally enforced unity, generally forced by coercive power. And by coercive, I mean Somebody somewhere has the ability to say, you're either going to toe the line with us or you can go somewhere else. We won't have you around. That also exists in Protestant churches. It exists in churches that have the right form of government, plurality of elders and all of that. It exists there as well. How dare you question the decisions of the board of elders? How dare you bring up something about the man of God who stands up there and and entertains us week to week. How dare you? And so there is a forced, coercive power that seeks to produce an organizational sort of unity. Uh, you've heard this term, maybe you've heard this term vision casting. It's been around for a while. Where uh, there's a lot of people who think the pastor's job is vision casting. <laughs> and I'm convinced that's just a, that is a, that's an attempt at bringing about a false sort of unity. If the pastor's good at putting out a vision there, uh, another way to say it is, if the, if the pastor is good about getting people excited about a particular project, well, that will tend to unify people at least as long as that project is, is being worked on. You know, groups of people tend to do better when they can work together on a, on a particular project issue or item. And so vision casting, the good vision caster is the one who can get everybody excited about one particular deal. And let's do that. And while we're doing that, we'll have maybe more unity than we would have had otherwise. But that's still not the unity of mind and heart that the New Testament describes as being the product of the fact that we're all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Particularly, I believe in churchianity, the MIC, the clearest compromise on the way to achieving unity is silence from the pulpit on hot topics or controversial issues. We're going to have unity because the pastor is not going to say anything divisive. We're going to have unity because nothing is going to be preached that anybody could argue with or would care enough to argue about. I listened to one Baptist preacher addressing a, a meeting filled with preachers and deacons and church leaders. He was trying to give kind of a state of the church sort of address. And he said, our churches are completely ununited. They're completely in disharmony over the issue, over political issues. There's no unity over political issues. And then he said, and I have no idea what to do about it. I'm sure he thought he was just keeping it real. 
But he was, he was exposing the problem that churchianity refuses to preach on controversial issues. And so you wind up with congregations filled with people who have been given no biblical instruction, no biblical guidance in how to apply the word of God to every area of life. And lo and behold, they listen instead to talking heads on CNN or Fox or wherever it is. And so instead of mimicking the word of God, they're mimicking either left-wing humanism or right-wing humanism. And this pastor, I'm doing air quotes now, this pastor has no idea what to do about it. Well, I don't doubt that that's true. He, he has no idea what to do about it. This is an issue. Here's another idol, isn't it? Here's another lofty uh, thought or a, another stronghold raised up against the knowledge of Christ. I've been in churches. I know you have. You, you, I'm not saying anything you haven't heard or experienced a million times. Silence from the pulpit on anything that could be controversial. It's an idol. It's not. Silence breeds the sort of unity that, well, there's just nothing being talked about that's worth getting upset about. You know, uh, if the pastor would say something that meant something to anybody, then there might be some arguments. But the only reason we're unified is because nobody cares enough to be upset one way or the other. And that's not the unity we're supposed to have. So by going through this and just using Psalm 133 and the topic of unity and disunity as an example, I hope you can see that I think these four, three or four questions that I've asked here, I think if you've got a preacher's heart or a preacher's imagination, I think you already see how this suddenly presents targets for your preaching. There's nothing, there's nothing warfare about Psalm 133. It's a very peaceful psalm. But just asking these simple questions, suddenly there are targets who need to hear the message of Psalm 133. There are targets. There are altars that need to be torn down. What were those questions again, just in case you didn't get them? What does the culture think of the curse consequence? How does the culture seek to remedy the curse consequence? And then the third question, how does churchianity wrongly address the curse consequence? Keep those questions in your mind as you're going through your Bible study and as you're analyzing your text. And I think you can already sense that uh, you may be thinking more aggressively about how you would preach that than you normally would. So we'll go ahead and end here. The next time we get together and talk about sermon preparation and reconstruction, I think we'll get into more issues about how to actually structure your sermon. We'll, I've got some questions you can ask that will help you deal with application in a more reconstructed fashion. And we'll begin to talk at least about how to put together an introduction and a conclusion. And maybe not a... Uh, <laughs> let me say this. I think that a, a reconstructed sermon should be easy to listen to because it should be dramatic. We're going to look at how to 
not falsely, how to organically introduce the attention-grabbing drama that you need in your introduction and conclusion. I don't know how much of that we'll get done next time, but uh, here we are. We're closed. Go out and preach these things. Tear down those idols, man. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.